Welcome to Untapped Higher Education. I'm Wes Hallam, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Sue Blackett, who is the Associate Professor of Accounting Education at Henley Business School um, and the Programme Director for the Accounting and Finance BSc. And I've known Sue for quite a long time in various guises before, so I'm really excited to get her um, on the show. Sue, welcome. Thanks for, thanks for joining me today. Hi, Wes. Thanks for inviting me. It's lovely to see you again. Oh, it's always a pleasure and um, I thought we might jump um, right in actually because one of the things that I've always been fascinated about the work that you do is you have to deliver a, an accounting module to a pretty broad group of students um, some of which have not really opted to, to want to study accounting. They might be more interested in doing a marketing degree or doing a, a degree in operations management or something like that, but it's a common module on the first year course. Uh, and that's seemingly quite common across uh, lots of institutions at the moment. Um, what are the challenges of having to deliver what can be quite a dry subject to somebody who's not interested in accounting um, to that kind of group of students? Um, it's quite challenging in that, as you say, when anything is compulsory and somebody hasn't chosen to take it, um, there's kind of already a kind of a barrier up against getting engagement. That plus a lot of students think accounting is all about being good at maths and good with numbers, um, even though you know, I don't have A-level maths, but I'm a qualified accountant. So I try to sort of let them know that it's not about being good at maths because I think you know a lot of people might have trauma from their school days thinking maths I hate it I never want to see it again and now I'm being forced to do it so that's another barrier so we have the maths angle we have a compulsory module so there's a sense of being made to do something so that's the second barrier um, the third one is kind of um, an interest in completely different areas so it's kind of getting students to understand that you know, even when you are going to become a marketing manager, somebody is going to put some accounting or financial information in front of you and you have to be able to interpret that information in a useful way. So that they are the main kind of like challenges. And then the biggest of all, I think the effect of all of these barriers is engagement. So um, in the way in which we deliver the module, we actually record um, our lectures in 15 20 minute chunks so that students are able to go back and repeat um, watch the videos make notes and take their do it in their own time rather than it being timetable in the classroom where I think a lot of people would be under pressure to take in lots of new information over a much shorter period of time so we pre-record our lectures in small bite-sized chunks and then we have in-person workshops so one challenge that we have found is attendance at the in-person workshops um, kind of starts off good at the beginning of term and then sort of like starts to decline as the term goes on um, and accounting is for for these students is a subject that builds week on week so even though you've watched the lecture videos on introducing the topic you also have to know how to use that information how to apply 
that information in different mini case study scenarios and that's what we do in the workshops so when students don't attend the workshops then they're missing out on developing those skills to use that information we've been um, sort of introducing through our lecture recordings so yeah they're the main challenges I mean, you know, not many. Sounds no. sounds very very easy and straightforward to to deliver. Um, I'm I'm struck by what you were saying with the with the chunking up of the um, of the lectures. It's I think that has to be a way forward for for most large courses. I was reading a, an article by uh, another um, another speaker on the podcast, um, Alexandra Mihai, who was talking about the importance of leaving reflective space in learning and yeah. uh, i think a lot of the tendency with you know big lecture formats is that you've got 60 slides you've got to get through or of content and you have a very limited amount of time in which to do that and you know the students need to learn all of that content but if you are sitting and you're having to rattle through this stuff and just information overload people you're not giving them any chance to consider if they've understood it or not. It's very yeah. easy to sit there quite passively, but you know, you've got to take time to process that that knowledge overload. So are you still doing that kind of large format lecture, but the recordings are trying to give students that opportunity? Is that the way that that, that it's working? Um I think the way in which I personally teach accounting, I teach it as it's a communicative language because a lot of the technology a lot of the terminology that we use is very specific to accounting so you have to learn all of that first and, and I have always done it through doing activities and using active learning so it and that way of teaching doesn't lend itself to big lectures with hundreds of people sitting there listening um, so one of the other things that we've that I have sort of found is that people who are used to standing up and just delivering content without any feedback or interaction, those are the kind of lecturers who are struggling with these big, big modules because you can't see if students are taking in the information. You can't see if that information has been understood. You can't concept check in those massive lecture um, scenarios so by having a workshop where students are in smaller groups and in the small groups they um, work on an activity and they're sharing ideas as a lecturer you can walk around the room and hear them um, problem solve and then that gives you a much better idea of whether or not they've internalized that information that's been delivered in the lecture so um, you know I, I think some people use I mean I've also do it as well. I make use of Mentimeter um, in another module where I use Mentimeter to concept check because it's the quickest way and it's fun as well to kind of break up um, the, the pace of a session to just check that people are following what you're saying. But I find that having people working in small groups and working together to solve a problem is a really great way for them to um, show that they have learned having said that what we've been finding over the past couple of years is that students don't actually watch the lecture videos so they come to the workshop and then they're expecting to be taught how to 
solve the problems like there's a shortcut if we don't bother doing the lectures and we just come to learn how to solve the problems and that's going to be enough and i think what a lot of students find is that isn't enough because they don't understand why things are being done in a certain way so there's a sort of tension between being told everything at school and you're coming in to a first year module where you're then being asked to work in little small groups problem solving so that so that's a, another kind of an issue so i think we're going to look at different ways this year as to how we can um, encourage students to work in these small groups so that they feel it is a safe space so they can explore their knowledge because i think the other thing which i've seen is a lot of students are scared to get the wrong answer and it's 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 not seen as a learning opportunity when you get something wrong and you try again, which to me is that's what it's all about. So it's kind of trying to um, let students know that it's okay to make a mistake because you've tried something and now you can try something else, you know, and that and that's fine. I think you're very right. There's um, there is a certain level of, of of maturity that's needed to understand that making those mistakes is a really important part of development i think you know we we very early on in our in our lives you know when you're a, a young kid you spend a lot of time doing you know trial and consequence i did this thing what happened and you you naturally make those mistakes as you learn social boundaries yeah. and you learn where different things are and i think you know you you sort of settle on a on a on a set of, of what's good and what's bad. You go into your teenage years and you start to push particularly those social boundaries with your parents and your peers and, and see where those things are. And then by the time you're sort of getting to university, maybe that's that's solidified. That's that's your your worldview has set of I know what I can do and I know that I like being right about what I do. Yeah. And it's giving oh, who was it? There was a a biomed um lecturer a biomed engineering lecturer over in in ireland who I've, I've done some interviews with before who has a freedom to fail uh, yeah. uh initiative like he uses his time to give students the space to fail and to understand that it's a it's a safe and healthy thing yeah. to do to to kind of learn and develop i think it was quite interesting when um you were talking about there about students maybe not watching the videos and expecting to be taught that content i wonder if that's perhaps in the way that information that's presented online if you have a question that you want answering or a problem you need to solve you go to youtube type in that exact question and the exact answer is provided to you um but maybe that's that access to very targeted kind of answer and solution based content makes it more challenging for for you to foster the idea of learning the theories and learning the basics and i think that might be a problem across a lot of higher education that the way that students access solutions to things is just very different um now. i think that's it i mean it's sort of you know when we were students it was you were given an idea of what something was and it was the expectation which was everybody understood that it was your job as a student to then go away and find out more and that meant you know going to the library and you know looking at books this is obviously i was at university before well just when things were going online or you know more latterly 
going online and finding out more information but this going out and exploring aspect seems to have disappeared slightly in that I feel as though students don't want to spend the time doing that anymore and that exploration I think is part of trialing things and testing things and you know if you fail then you try something else but that step now seems to be disappearing so it's trying to find a different way to get information across because these students who didn't watch the videos during the term would then watch them for revision ahead of the exam which is a little bit too late because you need the time for that information to embed and you can then connect things from different lectures you can connect ideas and then you can really you know have a really solid base but if you've left it until the last minute enough to get through an exam then it's kind of skating along the top of what you need to know which is fine because i think what people will find is in five or ten years time when they're sitting in an office and somebody produces them with a marketing report and the effect of profit and loss and performance of the business then it's like ah oh, okay uh i've seen this before where did i see it before how does this all fit together and maybe then it will all kind of fall into place I know you were doing um you've done a published a paper about uh, I was just reading it before before this interview about sort of the effects of time sensitivity um of when you're looking at uh, there's a graph in there of students going back and accessing recordings yeah. and and resources in the two weeks prior yeah. to two weeks prior to their summative assessments which I think we've always known that students have done um, yeah. I think now it's it's more it's more visible yeah. because we've got all these digital tools that will tell us exactly when things things have been seen. But also I think it could be a slight more reflection of, of the student body and, and their behaviors is probably more pronounced now. Um, yeah. I was talking to somebody um, last week uh, about this and I wanted to get your perspective on it. Um, this sort of, the, the, the lack of willingness to explore um, the idea was that it comes down to students being increasingly time poor or there's a lot of competition for students time that's probably a better way of putting it yep. whether that be through you know the they've got another job they've got caring responsibilities uh, on, on one end of it to you know learning is competing with every other thing that they want to do in their life whether that be enjoyable or not and so they want to find the quickest route that they can scrape by as you said there do you do you think that that i think that's always sort of existed we've always known that there are some students who will just scrape through uh, the bare minimum of what they need to do do you think that that is increasing or or that that it's something that we can do anything about um, I do think it is increasing. I think it's more prevalent now because we've got um, more people wanting to go to university. Um, we've got more people who, in wanting to go to university, also they might have to work, say, 20 hours a week. They might have care responsibilities as well. They might commute to university. Um, so there's a, So there's that going on. And then not just that, but there's also 
you know, as soon as you pick up your mobile phone, you'll look at the report every week that tells you, you know, I do it, how much time I've spent on my phone. And I'm shocked to find that it can be something like two hours a day. I'm like, when was I doing that? But, you know, obviously my phone isn't lying to me. So I have somehow lost two hours looking at, I don't know, something on YouTube or something on Google, I'm, I'm not sure, or any other search engine of your choice. Um, so I, th I think that's right. I think um, years ago, before we had mobile phones, we had to go to a library to find out that information. Whereas now you could end up, oh, I don't know something, let me just check on my phone, and you're led down a rabbit hole of two hours of looking at related things that are not dead urgent, but are interesting. And it's kind of that immediate access to information. I think is a bit of a distractor from other things which might take priority. So I think, yes, I think students are time poor when it comes to their studies now. Um, and I think that that then calls for some really efficient time management, which I th think is perhaps the next area because there's one thing I tell my academic duties at the beginning of a term is look at when all your assessments are due put them into your into your um, calendar and then work backwards to see how you're going to organize your time and I know in the first year people are just looking at me and just laughing inside by the time they get to the third year and I think it's because it's now at the end um, they then understand the importance of that. But I think time has a different meaning to younger people. So whereas older people, we would plan and think about next week, two weeks time next year, I, I just get the impression that students these days are thinking about today and what needs to be done in the next hour or two or three, rather than in a more long-term view of next week, next month, next year. Could be totally wrong. Uh, I, I don't think, I, I, anecdotally, I know that me as a me as a student did certainly not utilise. I mean, I did a fluffy degree anyway, so I didn't have much contact time or, 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 or quote unquote work to, to do on a weekly basis. Um, I'm sure. I'm hoping my old lecturers aren't listening because they will shoot me for saying that. Um, but I wasted so much time when I was there. Um, but what you mentioned there about time management, kind of brings me to a really a really quite gnarly question um that i would appreciate your your view on um there is always well, ever since i've worked in higher education there's always been this argument between spoon feeding students and giving them giving them freedom to go and explore and i think i've I remember when I used to be trying to to encourage people to to buy different products that would do things for them and then do different do different activities that a lot of the pushback came around. Oh, this is spoon feeding for students. I don't want them to, you know, I don't want to give them the answers. But what you mentioned there about time management is a really interesting um, example of that need for scaffolding and structure for for students when they come from an environment that entirely does that for them, it may not be scaffolding or, or kind of spoon feeding them the answers, but something like spoon feeding them, here is a schedule, I think you should stick to it, might be somewhere in in between in between that. What what where do you stand on the spoon feed debate? Because it's always it's always a personal perspective, I think. It's controversial, isn't it? Um 
because the philosophy of my teaching was that not to spoon feed because then you have to experiment when you experiment and fail you're learning something but with the way time is perceived by young people now they don't feel they have the time to do that experimentation and fail and try again they, they want to be immediately successful so I've sort of I've always scaffolded activities but what I also do now is I scaffold the activities I put in um, say like a Mentimeter quiz or some fun activity to break it up a bit and then once we've had a bit of fun then I'll go in with a, a slightly more complicated activity well, I'll say, right, go along. We've just had a bit of fun. Now do this. And then what I found by doing that is then students, because they've had that bit of release by having a, a 10, 15 minutes of fun, then they will get together and they will gladly talk about a problem to try and solve it. So I've had to kind of structure things slightly differently in order to get them to try to do something. And that that's with a particular group of students, whereas with another group of students, I'm afraid that, you know, I end up doing the spoon feeding. However, I don't, well, it's not, I'd say probably maybe 50% spoon feeding. And then the rest of it is available online with very clear kind of instructions and links between different um, pieces so that students can follow what is going on and why. That's the thing. I, I need students to understand why. Kind of thing. And I don't think that's the bit that can be rushed. Definitely. It's interesting that you build in that kind of um, reward structure um, that a, a, a lot of a lot of you know study tips and study advice and things all talk about oh you know when you're revising for a, for an exam you you got to reward yourself give yourself a little break or some you know sweets or whatever it is to break up break up the flow it's interesting that you bring that into that kind of live delivery aspect of it i think it, yeah. it's it's a it's a nice extrapolation yeah. of that from there um it's something I'm, that i used to do when i was teaching um english to um teenagers in spain and i used to start the class by listing all the activities the fun on the board and after a few weeks they understood that these activities were the fun games we were going to do and any kind of um behavior which was not good an activity got removed so then within the group it built this collective responsibility for good behavior because if we behaved well then we'd be doing having all these fun things to do during the class kind of thing so it's just something that i learned from them that i just kind of took took forward yeah it's it, it is um it's one of the things about higher education that i always find fascinating is that we have you know it is it is the body that does the the research on behavioral psychology on learning on education on growth and all these different all these different areas and sometimes i think people or academics can forget that students don't magically change from being a human being when they come to be a student all of the other behavioral and and, and motivational uh, forces still operate on them just just because they've decided that they really want to study philosophy um doesn't change the fact that yeah. they've got all of these systems that have been developed like similarly to to, to what you did with the, the spanish students 
I think that's it. I think um, before it you would be as a student, you'd be expected to change your behaviour when you arrive at university to suddenly become or play the role of a student. And that is no longer clear because so many people come from so many diverse backgrounds now that I, interpretation of what it is to be a student, I think, differs from person to person. So this kind of homogenous behaviour that we're expecting, we, we don't have that anymore. So we have to be more um, open and more inclusive in terms of the idea of what a student is. But I think the key thing, as you, you just said, is about behaviour. I think now it's more about psychology and how that is used in education. That's what I think is interesting and something I'd like to get into a, a bit more. It, it yeah the i always just think back to the old like old sort of comedy sketches that would have a group of in quotes students and you and when i think back to i know exactly what they look like how they speak you know they, they'll have a, a well-thumbed copy of some pretentious book stuffed in their back pocket and that's the the archetypal student look but that just doesn't relate to the modern student That's at right. all and and yeah. you're very right there's a there's an assumption that these you know 18 year olds will will suddenly snap out of who they are as people yeah um and i think i think it's very it's very kind of self-aware yeah. of, of you to be able to look at the fact that you know we all have ideas about what a student is but it gets broader and broader with each with yeah. each year and which is a good thing mind is is good but it does then sometimes um really highlight some gaps in our understanding of of what what that student actually is and, 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 and yeah and also international students a lot they just get forgotten and they've come from a completely different education system from a different cultural system and they're expected to suddenly know what to do and how to behave sort of thing so you know with another colleague um we developed a toolkit to help um, international students understand that you know when you come to university and you see things like office hours so it's language like that people what do you mean office hours that's when i work nine to five well in he we know that as being a time when an academic is available in their office or on teams to talk to students about problems so international students kind of don't automatically understand this very specific language that we use. So we developed this toolkit to say, you know, it's okay to go and speak to an academic. We're not here to be sorts or perceived to be untouchable. Um, and if you want to go with a friend or a group of friends, then do however you feel comfortable. Because we understood from our research that students didn't want to come and speak to an academic because they saw it as them not understanding something and feeling embarrassed not only that but it was they were embarrassed for the lecturer for having to explain it again because it meant the lecturer's explanation the first time around wasn't good enough and rather than dealing with all this embarrassment they would rather ask each other and get it wrong and go off on the wrong track so that that was really really important to us when we thought you know well yeah so students who are coming from abroad have a, another perspective again that we need to be more diverse and more inclusive when we're dealing with young people i think you're absolutely right the 
the example that always jumps out to me with international students is that a real hesitancy to challenge lecturers yeah. Yeah. Um, and particularly in subjects where you need to have some challenge um you can't it's not a gospel uh it, in a discipline that's not gospel um you have to be comfortable in asking you know sticking your hand up and asking a question in the middle of a lecture theater yeah. um if you don't understand or you disagree with something that they said uh but that's that's a huge cultural shift um, yes yeah unfortunately that's about all we have time for now um i would talk to you all day um but it's it's a it's a really fascinating space um last question um yeah. just given your experience with teaching these these really big kind of going back to what we talked to initially these really big um non-specialized cohorts um is there a piece of advice you could you would give to somebody who maybe hasn't delivered something like this before about how to engage this really broad and diverse group of, of, of interests into one one specific area um i'd say start early start your planning early um in terms of how you're going to resource it who's going to teach it because i think it's important to get the right type of person who understands that students with varying abilities you need to be able to reach them because i think too often lecturers are very comfortable um, dealing with students in the top one or two percent who understand everything you say first time but it's reaching those who might need more time to understand or need things explained in a different way um, so a lot of patience is needed there and i think um, the d deliver at a student i don't think that that works i think you need to be looking to break things up introducing um, some fun activities varying the pace um, to in order to get people to come along on that journey of you know getting into us a particular particular area sage advice and I'm, I'm sure that will be very very helpful for somebody facing the daunting task of 600 students with only a hundred of them actually opting to to study a particular yeah. um, area and that is all we've got time for um so uh, the only thing left for me to say is, is thank you to my guest sue blackett uh, from henley business school um, i'm always fascinated to find out how you've been developing the work that you're doing and particularly with these large cohorts and engaging this really diverse and complex mix of students so sue thank you so much for coming on the podcast today thanks wes i've enjoyed it thank you very much and that's all from us at untapped